Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. George's Rod and Staff, the official podcast of the Church of St. George, the Martin Kales River, alongside the chapelries of St. Mark and St. Monica's. I am Lindsay Shooters, your host on this exploration of faith during this time of crisis, and I'm joined as always by the director of our parish, the Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman. How do I find you? We, I'm doing okay. I've just been, um, you know, very blessed and busy today. We had the wall of, uh, wall of, of, of remembrance consecrated. Um, and we just got off the phone call with somebody who said they sent it to Auntie Iris's niece and nephew uh, in England and, um, and Australia. And um, and I mean, I don't know how many other folk were was watching him, but it was we had 96 people attend this occasion this morning in the open air. Mm-hmm. And um, we had eight, nine people, sorry, 10 people interred today uh, for the first time round. Um, and yeah, for some, it was a, quite an emotional service because it's the last burial place of their loved ones, the earthly remains. And, um, and so, yeah, so it was a very, and then Archdeacon Lundi Joko did a very good job in leading us and preaching. And, um, so, so then I, of course, had to prepare myself for a wedding in Paul this afternoon and um yeah that went i just got back from that and um i try under the challenging circumstances of time and stuff um to not cut short what you know god has laid in my heart to share with people in the context of the service of worship that our prayer book guides us in uh because you know um i don't for me, it's not right to short circuit just because um, somebody was a little late for their occasion and uh, and try to, to steer away from judgmentalism around that. And and uh, because we're a, it's a time to rejoice. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and, and I think that's the point one would enjoy rejoicing with a couple in an act of worship before God. And for me, I hope that is what came across to the rest of the people. Um, of course, every time I do a marriage service, I have, am confronted with the vows again. And um, so in my many years of marriage to Trudy, I am going to be held a whole lot guiltier because I learned this <laughs> on a regular basis. But yeah, uh, the beautiful mountains uh, or copies of the peril that we were in was a lovely setting. Mm. Uh, so that is congratulations to Kim and Cheslin Ferguson who Ooh. got married this afternoon. A lovely surname. I always loved the surname Ferguson until um, I was confronted by a CEO who bears that surname and we didn't get on well and then I instantly lost a little bit of, but that's enough about me. Um, <laughs> we will explore more of your, the contents of your heart and your mind um, and your personal preparation for this Advent season. It is of course the second Sunday of Advent. The theme you have extracted is God fills us with joyful expectation uh, it's a lovely passage that you also placed in here. Um, I'm not actually going to read through it now, but I love this, how it ends, where it's like, what's it? The 
the child in the swaddling bands, the Christ in the tomb. It is a life of dependence upon creatures of silence and secrecy of hidden light. It is the life of a prisoner. You can expand on that later. But first, could you please call us together with the words of the collective prayer? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free and raised up for us a mighty savior, born of the house of his servant David. My brothers and sisters, the Lord who remembers his holy covenant is with you. Our king and savior draws near, O oh, come, let us adore him. And so let us pray together the collect for the second Sunday of Advent. God of timeless grace, you fill us with joyful expectation. Make us ready for the message that prepares the way so that with upright heart, uprightness of heart and holy joy, we may eagerly await the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, in the first reading, it's an interesting one. Um, Jerusalem, take off the clothes you have worn in your mourning and distress and put on the eternal splendor of God's glory. And I just want to go back to that 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 opening passage uh, that, that you placed in, in the notes here, where it's like, our life is a sacramental life. So the theme of the second candle that, that you've personally chosen, uh, it's called many other things, but um, for this year, for 2021, at St. George's, we are referring to it as the preparation candle. You live a sacramental life. You have lived this life for a long time. And as you have to prepare and confront those vows with every wedding ceremony you preside over, you also have to go through, you, Rodney Whiteman, have to go through the preparation for Advent every year as a working priest, uh, before you were a working priest. Talk us through a little bit of that. Is it different every year? Or are there like rituals that you kind of go through with each week? You know, thank you very much for that. And um, I, I, I um, just want to say welcome to all of those who are joining us in this act of worship from the parish and beyond. Um, you know, you if you are if you're glued to what they call we are people of the book. Then there's an assumption I don't need to think for for anything in preparation. I just need to do the 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 job on the day because the words are all there. I know the parts I have to lead and so forth. How do you do that with a good conscience if you are not thinking? Now we ended off the last Sunday or the culminating Sunday of the previous lectionary year, previous liturgical calendar year, with Christ the King Sunday, and we brought to that culmination. And as we are in that culmination, trying to, to enter that mystery, that mystery of faith, we are then uh, uh, seven days down the line uh, thinking about how does that mystery lead us into a sense, well, this is where we're going to be at 
eventually the culmination of all of life will be uh, celebrating the kingship of Jesus in all eternity. That's what our faith lends itself to. But how do we get there? We get there by prophetic announcement. An awareness to what this culmination is all about. In Christ, the culmination of hope happens. In Christ, we are called to, you know, when you when you've prepared yourself for a wedding banquet or whatever, and the, the ritual you go through in order that when you arrive at the point where you when you need where your preparation leads you to, then your preparation ought to be matching your entry into that that space of mystery that you've been invited to. Advent um, has new ways of of greeting people, new ways of bringing into the liturgy uh, things that celebrates its season, like the the, the burning of a candle right at the beginning of, uh, of, 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 of the of the of the service. And whenever we whenever we we light candles in the service, it's a it's a sacramental celebration of the presence of Christ. And mm. baptism, we've lit the Christ light. At Easter, we've lit the Paschal candle. We are a people of light. Um, and so every action is a sacramental action. And so, um, and, and, and that sacramental um, the, and the liturgical nature of Advent stays with us because we cannot enter into service of worship totally hopeless without expecting hope. We can't enter in there without some level of preparation. So all the themes of Advent are themes carried right through the season towards the culmination of, our, of, 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 of the Feast of Christ the King. So through baptism, we are called to live the sacramental life, a life of holiness and a life of grace, a life of worship, a life of sacrifice, a life um, of service and a life of community, a, a, a life in which sharedness happens, a body is broken, a blood outpoured for re redemptive, um, uh, the redemptive uh, capturing of people into a community of hope and faith. So there's never a time when we are not called into sacramental living. Mm. We are always uh, called. You know, even when we are not able to be in church, but we're doing the, the virtual thing and we do spiritual communion and those beautiful words, as simplistic, but as so profound in its mystery, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. One of the prayers we pray in our faith, believing that as he comes, he comes to us in the sacraments of bread and wine by faith with thanksgiving. So we are always called to live the sacramental life. As we are called to live the Eucharistic life, because Eucharistic means 
being those who live thankfully. As we are called in our journey from Advent, um, we don't lose Advent when we go into Christmas season. Advent is the passage towards that, so we don't lose the sense of that part of the journey as we enter into the other aspects of the liturgy. In other words, of the journey with Jesus, the lectionary calendar years are based on the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus in his earthliness. And we are called to come and follow. Um, uh, uh, we are celebrating the one who comes to us and who calls us to come to him. That's sacramental living. Mm. Okay, so your personal experience is going through that every every single year. Yeah, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but when it gets to the liturgy, mm. when it gets to preaching on a more conscious level. This time around, for example, and you probably would have picked up, I never placed there a theme in most cases, nor a quote to capture what the season meant. These days, I'm looking into to that, and I'm coming up with pretty significant jewels. Last week, we had Henry Nouwen, in a very simplistic way, saying, the Lord who is coming, always come. Mm. Just that very simple way of looking at Advent, uh, and where he says that life is Advent. And so we, we, you know, he draws us into the broader understanding of that. So I've added this dimension for my own edification and hopefully for the edification of the, the congregation. Uncle Colin takes this liturgy and, and before the service starts, he puts this quote on with the theme and he allows people to read through it. You know, it stays on the one screen for a moment uh, for them to read and you'll go through and then it's repeated again. It's mm. looped uh, so that people can. So that's that's for me. And then also in the liturgy, what what word struck me profoundly was the word pro prophetic. Mm. Uh, and I call that the heralded message, which is something new to me. So for me this year. Prophecy and the prophetic voice, uh, the heralded message, uh, which comes, I think I've used two old, one Old Testament one and one a hymn for last week. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And this week I used the song of Zechariah uh, to, 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 um, to, to celebrate the heralded voice, the heralded message, a prophetic utterance of, of the pronouncement. And it's interesting. In the feast of Christ the King, there's the prophetic pronouncement of his king, Christ's kingship. And in the Advent season, seven days later, it's that, that prophetic uh, voice now continues to call us to that same feast of Christ the King, but now in an Advent uh, way of preparation of, um, of future and present hope, peace, love, 
because next week the, the 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 third candle, which is a different candle, will be love because that's central to everything that we are called to be and do. That it is. Although <laughs> a lot of people in my position, from my perspective, would say that love doesn't actually exist. But it's yeah, it's one of those weird wrinkles that I like to iron out <laughs> because I have children and I've felt something within myself that that I cannot fully explain or describe. Uh, the first reading was obviously from uh, the book of Baruch, which is an interesting book because it was first penned and read to the Israelites in Babylon. And then yeah. sent through to Jerusalem. So it was like speaking to an audience that may have been a little bit detached. So you're looking at like first generation Israelites who were born in Babylon, actually, um, who had no connection, direct connection to, to the Holy Land. Um, although I say Holy Land in quotes, uh, it's still very much disputed. Um, I don't want to lose any more listeners, so <laughs> we won't step into Israeli politics right now. And then this is obviously um, tempered by uh, the reading from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I'm going to take you down to verse 6. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So obviously, our homie is in prison again. <laughs> Was this the second time or still the first time? Um, Philippi, I think this was probably, that's a very good question. I think this was probably the second time yeah. <laughs> on one of his, 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 his um, on one of the challenges he had with the authorities of the time. Uh, um, he founded this community in AD 50. Yeah. So it was his second missionary journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, it's, it's just bizarre how many times Paul was in jail. That, that is, oh, yes. And and for things that wasn't criminal, and yet was criminal according to the law of the land, um, can, and it's very fun, religion is a fundamentalistic part of what it means to be human. What it means to be human is, in my view, to believe. One of the key elements of being human is the capacity to believe. Of course, where do we, how, you know, you, faith begins within you, or does faith begin from without? You see something, hear something, and then you respond. Is faith that kind of response? But it's something within us, um, you know. I take my car to Lindsay's garage because I trust Lindsay. That's an act of faith. Uh, he's always done good service to my car, even though I may not know what he's doing to the engine and so on. All I know is that when I'm driving the car, I feel 
safe because Lindsay worked on it. And so with the doctor that I've been a client for patient for many years, who's always prescribed things for me in such a way that somehow I seem to have gotten healthy. And so I believe in that. Doctor people sometimes even say it like that. I believe in Dr. A, you know, because he's... So somehow the word faith has a sense inside of what it means to be human. Um, and so we, 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 we obviously express that. Now, but, but the examples you are citing here are yes. evidence-based examples. Because they are payoffs. Not necessarily evidence-based because I don't see the mechanic working. But you and know it works because the problem has been fixed. And depending on if I took it for a regular service or whether I took it for a problem. Yeah. Um, well, the continuing reliability of your car speaks to the regular service. Um, you could request a bill of, of work from the mechanic sure. and he can they can sure. provide you with that. The same thing with the doctor, whereas with religious faith, there's no receipts to be had there. Oh, they are. Where? Creation is one. Oh, you're going to hide behind that one. <laughs> no, they, I said one. I said mm. one. Remember, I've always used to say to you the revelation of God has come through us through creation, through scripture, and through Jesus. And then there's the community that forms itself around Jesus. And then there's what we draw from scripture that gives us a sense of hope and a sense of courage. So there's the story um, caught up. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm so moved by these words that Zechariah, when he sees Jesus, says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set us free. He has raised up us a mighty savior, born of the house of his servant David. So here is, um, and, and, and this is the thing, is faith always evidence-based? Trust is evidence. But is faith always evidence-based? You are the one that was equating trust to faith. Now, trust is a part of faith. But to, to, to believe. Um, when I when 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 I have a notion, you know, and I also uh, love this that is caught up in the in the uh, creed and baptism. Do you believe and trust in one God who created the world and there's order in the world? Um, what Jesus did for us on the cross to redeem humanity. I believe in the work of redemption, the 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 blessing of the of the of the of the chalice. Is covenanted because it's the reminder that sins are forgiven. Uh, speaking that kind of language and living that in a warring world. Mm. Uh, the evidence is of people of faith who are people of peace. Um, you know, so the evidence is in the witness of the people. 
so so is faith always something I see with the you know do I do I believe because I see with my eye or do I believe also do I believe because I see with my heart? Um, I, I understand. So, I understand what you're saying, but it's it, 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 <laughs> you got my back up now. Uh, I'm glad. It, I did. it infuriates me when religion hides behind unknown to but make a case for itself, where it's like nobody knows the root of creation. So it's it's cowardice. That's an, that's an assumption you're making. I'm making an assumption that no one knows yes, the root of you creation. You are making an assumption. It, there's a revelation in creation. And the fact that there's a revelation in creation gives us the understanding. When we, you know, when, whenever people discuss this, they take somebody who created something like a vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. And in the booklet that you find with it, they tell you in directing you how to use this thing. And when something goes wrong, don't just take it to anybody. Go back to the maker who is able to repair these things. I'm fascinated with that because it gives me the perception of the person the model or the or the or the or the item made has got a creator. And there may be a name attached to it. So mm-hmm. when I look at the world, I look at it through that lens and wonder. And this is what faith is about. I wonder who is behind all of this. Now salvation history has taught me. It is God. That comes through community for me. Whether that is the name that we should utter, because we do know Moses was given a sense of God's name that we couldn't pin down in terms of that context, because Egyptians believed in many gods with many names. So we've got to look at all of that. So I, I certainly believe that within faith, there is wonder, there is awe um, that draws us into the mystery of creation towards our creator. But the creator is not known to you or to me or to anybody who studies the stars, walks the earth. This is not known, so yours is also an assumption. Yeah, I'm not saying faith is not based on assumption, but but I'm 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 saying my response to the mystery of creation, the mystery of the person of Jesus, and what he taught me. My soul resonates with that. It finds comfort in that mm-hmm. revelation mm-hmm. to me. So I can't see, I can't walk in this world without that sense. Because if I walk through the world without that sense of God, then what am I dealing with? And Paul brings me comfort here. He he challenged himself when he walked through a place with the Athenians, sees an altar erected to an unknown God. 
So they had a perception that there must have been a greater being than themselves whom they deify, but had no name. So the closest they could get was to an unknown God, but there was a sense of worship to that unknown God. Paul says, the one that you call unknown has been revealed. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the of the awe and magnificence of God in the person of Jesus, you know, just again broadens my sense of faith in the mystery of who God is and it's unfolding for me in conversations like this, in the orderliness of the world, in you know. In, in, in life generally, I have difficulty relating to unknown. But I find joy in relating to mystery. But mystery is unknown. Mystery is unfolding. It's <laughs> because it's revelatory. So, so I characterize myself as an agnostic because I am aware of the unknowable. Isn't that an attractive statement for you? <laughs> I'm aware of the unknowable. The fact that you can identify something in us unknowable means the possibility of knowing. Yeah, but I don't, I don't allow myself to be... Ah. Overwhelmed by the, the romanticism <laughs> of painting whatever picture I want on top of the unknowable. Yeah, I understand you... it as the unknowable, and I sometimes get sucked into little rabbit holes of trying to identify more things within this great unknowable. But I I find it. And you said earlier that you try not, you 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 do not pass judgment. I also do not outwardly pass judgment. I judge in my heart. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Which sounds horrible now that I've actually said it. Um, I said it in jest actually. Um, it just means that I keep my my judgment to myself. I try to not let it filter into my interpersonal relationships. Um, so there's the question, right? Do you require, we, we had this conversation way back, we were talking about grace. Um, do you require this romantic notion of a creator? And do you require the symbolism of Jesus and his life to be a good human? Um. I, I would say in order for me to discover my true self, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I struggle with some people's notions of who they think God is mm-hmm. and how those notions are sometimes forced on young people, and I'm talking years when I was younger, in my teenage years, mm. how certain notions that people fostered about God 
um, which for me resonates with the first commandment. These people are creating an image in my mind about a God as they understand it that's in conflict with the God of the Bible for me. But as a naive 16 or 14 year old, what do I know? Mm. So mm. now I get sucked into that world until God sets me free from it. And I have experienced that freedom from being sucked into that. I realized, again from a scriptural base, I must be careful that I implant into people's minds false images about God mm. in my theologizing from scripture, in my uh, expressions of faith. That is why it's important that a community puts out the creed and not individuals formulating their own creed um, so that we could collectively understand what it is we are trying to witness to and who it is that we were that we worshiping. Um, but but, but it's, it's easy for people to just take out uh, a text and just give it to you and then you sit with a guilty package and there's this distance between you and God. Um, the basis of, of, of which we say God is, God is love. And now, if God is love, even in our human understanding, then there's hope for us. Because what's the dynamic of the mystery of love? And why would I be lovable enough to be loved in the fact that I struggle even to love myself? How is it that St. Paul journeyed with all of what he was taught and comes from a prison cell to write to people and say, I am confident of this. What has he gone through to be able to make such a profound statement? What was I confident? That the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Who is that one that has begun a great work in you that will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ? He, for me, he's focusing on, for me, the work of creation and the work of redemption in human life and in the world. And the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, in my view, could be could be what we what we celebrated at, as the culmination of a liturgical year, the feast of Christ the King. So I look at this and I marvel at at this and I say, what's this journey Paul was on to reach that level of confidence when he was locked up in a prison cell? And could have just said, well, all of this is but just to waste. Why do I keep on doing this and I end up, as you said, how many times have Paul ended up in a jail cell? And yet that was his pulpit. The jail cell became his pulpit. The gospel that he proclaimed was written on parchment and sent so that congregations and be built up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that confidence that I'm seeking. Um, and it's a journey through it. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I understand that. But for me, like where I was going with the whole, whole judgment thing and the, the judgments that I pass in my heart is that I, I see that as a sign of weakness. For me, it's a sign of weakness because you are outsourcing your resilience, your ingenuity, your the fire in your belly. You are outsourcing to some greater being. So then it leaves you vulnerable to a moment of lapse where you are not confident, either through some weird idea that you have sinned and you are now being punished for some obscure reason, which is a, a very unhealthy notion. It is super unhelpful to load yourself with the expectations of perfection that needs to reach effectively an alien level. Because if you believe that God became flesh through Jesus Christ, Jesus was an alien. He was not from this world. So like to hold your humanity to an unreachable standard is it's a corrupt way of thinking and should you be shaken from your path your idea of you on your righteous path that leads you down a road that is super destructive so i i believe in building toughness through experience and seeing yourself emerge through that experience and not giving it to somebody else, you know? No one dragged you through it. You dragged yourself by the quick of your nails through whatever you were in. You know that if that was my perception to life, I would not be sitting here with you. Of course, because you'd be enlightened and you wouldn't take up the class. I wouldn't be enlightened. I probably would be depressed. <laughs> Why? Because I don't, I don't think that I have all of the resources in completion within myself to do what you are doing. Do what you think you can do in resisting so that you can grow your own personal strength as if you were the founder of all of this that you have within you to be able to make it all on, on your own. My salvation is this. The one who was God embodied my humanity, our humanity. He was the one who came to truly show me what it is to be human in him. Because even though I use all these wonderful terminologies, I have no clue their true essence. Love, hope, resilience, strength, and all of that kind of stuff are but words to me. But they become relational through faith in Jesus Christ. They, they get more meaning in my life because of the relationship I have with them, because I believe he has embodied me in my brokenness. 
the broken and shattered humanity that I have experienced along my life's journey. My, my challenge with health, my challenge with apartheid, my challenge with other aspects of being human, uh, the, 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 you know, calls for justice, the now in this 16 days uh, where one has to be so outspoken about gender-based violence. Um, and here we're talking about people who've been victimized um, as females, they have no re re resilience because they've been beaten to a pulp, raped, and even murdered. And, and how does all of what you are saying help that victim? How does all of what I believe helping that person um, who may have had to die uh, uh, that, that sad and lonely death? And I'm sitting there and saying, is it okay to be angry? And what kind of anger am I supposed to have uh, so that it doesn't get to the point of where I murder the perpetrator once caught, um, but rather the call for justice? Where does the sense of justice come to me and how does it grow? Um, I was watching a, a movie uh, uh, that was where this young lady who grew up with the golden spoon in her mouth um, and in her circles, there was this lust for control of the company and power. And she meets a doctor who comes out of poverty, who is wanting no longer, because in poverty, he couldn't help his sister become well on her own. And the systems of the world that have corrupted life that he had to fight against and could not win. And, and he now relating his story to her, she said to him something that I thought was brilliant. She said, power is not justice. And it made me, in fact, I just picked this up last night when I watched that, that episode. Power is not justice. So what does that thing call us to be if power is not justice? And this is what, it is a kingdom value. It is interesting that a kingdom value is not just bare power, but power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the kingdom value, there is a call for justice um, related to us looking at systems and speaking out prophetically against those systems that would continue to let young women and 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 and, and um, wives um, be brutalized by their husbands, I must say that my association with Jesus, the victim. What did we call her? What did that person at the beginning say about Jesus? In her spiritual, the Christ in the womb, the Christ in swaddling bands. The Christ in the tomb. It's a life of dependence upon creatures and silence and secrecy of hidden life. Light is the life of a prisoner. The one who goes to the cross to achieve our salvation. They, in him, is my hope. 
but I don't <laughs> I don't ascribe to myself the control. It's actually the knowledge of the lack of control. The only thing that I have that any person has control over is their actions and their reactions. So assuming that there is anything else at play outside of how you act and how you respond to other people's actions is folly. Because that assumes that you somehow can influence the world beyond your personal domain. You, you, you influencing the world from your personal domain because of your interaction of faith with Jesus Christ, with whom you have the relationship with. So, for example, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I'm being informed. I'm being... That I can't think on my own about love. I have to be informed, made aware of, uh, discern what is informing me, who is informing me, what I'm being informed about. And so I do believe that because life is relational, so I'm always relating from the inward self to that which is on the outside, like I'm relating to you now. Mm. You mm. are sharing with me what you are sharing, and I'm taking it in and processing it. But I'm processing it on the knowledge of what is in me already, mm. so that when I then process it to the level of articulation, I'm able to say to you what I understand mm. in response to what you're saying. Now, we are people of environment, of context. What goes into us is from context. Mm. It is from what is in the environment, mm. both within our control and beyond our control. And even the, the, the materials we use to inform us is something from the outside challenging what is on the inside, speaking to what, engaging what is on the inside, so that in our growing in the essence of ourself, we are able to then make a contribution and become those who, making a contribution, possibly could influence people in, in the right way. Um, when I was speaking at the wedding today, was I just speaking to the couple? to try and show them out of the text what are the possible things that they can embrace to make their marriage a happy one. Um, I 
I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm, I'm engaging the environment, the congregation itself, whom I don't know. Mm. And their responses to what I'm sharing helps me to say, that was very helpful to get that response because then what I said seemed to have resonated with somebody else. So in that environment, I'm being empowered, I'm growing, I'm learning, because that's the power of being a human being, the ability to learn from your environment, take it into your inner self and to work with it in such a way that you then develop understanding, uh, you grow, and so on. So we are people of context. Mm. And that is why I'm saying, what is then in that context that I'm engaging with, that I am uh, encountering, that is both the knowable, using your lovely word, the unknowable. And by both of that essence, I'm being informed even by the unknown, which I choose to call mystery. But <laughs> <laughs> and so I am able to, I mean, when you think of you and Monique in a marriage relationship, you, you are growing each other, challenging each other, she, from her insides outwards to you, you from your insides outwards to her. Now, what do you get in the middle then? That's the fascinating part. Because mm. those are the things that grow your relationship. Uh, that, that, that wonders whether you're still arguing the same way that you argued five years ago. Or have you improved the way you argued in your married life? Have you grown? Are you still arguing the same things? Has the context not changed? That new things are on the horizon. Have you not read and empowered yourself and skilled yourself so that more things are brought to the table that enriches your married life? Yeah, I think I, I think in response to that last thing, I, I've learned over time the areas that I can't be of assistance. So it's like, I don't, we have, we each have, have, have very small friendship circles. Um, and it, it's one of those things where it's like, I encourage Monique to vent her frustrations about me to me. But a lot of the times it's just her telling me things about myself that I already know. So it's like, the only thing I'm going to do is agree about my shortcomings and my failings. So it's like, if you want a different opinion <laughs> and you need to go to like an outsider <laughs> who isn't just going to accept that, yeah, those those are my failings. You've, you've pointed them out quite clearly. Um, but I, I'm... There's more yeah. to that than what you're saying. By pointing something out, there's something that needs to be explored there. Why am I pointing that out? And what can we do about it? 
So there's two other things I want to add to the frame that you mm-hmm. say we, you, you know, that, that's the limit of our response. There's two most powerful things in any relationship, and that's why I find about the mystery of God. And that is presence and silence. Hmm. And if there's anything that you in a in a marriage relationship, and therefore in my faith relationship, that we can embrace as authentic. Uh, relational experiences that is presence and and silence. It is out of that that conversation of authenticity will grow. Mm. The the when I said earlier on here um, at the 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 heralded message, this was the song of Zechariah. It's not even God saying anything. He he understands in his faith a God that is coming to his people. He's giving expression to the presence of God. And in his understanding of what he was taught about God and what the, the history of their faith has taught about God, he sees this as a presence that seeks to set free, that liberates. Which is what we believed when we prayed with many people over the 300 years of oppression and worked for and protested for and did all manner of things in the name of justice. And we did as a community and we did through conversation and prophetic uh, sermons to try and change the mindset of you. But it was short. It was short. Uh, uh, it had a shortfall in that justice seemed to be only directed to apartheid. For the sake of democracy. But it never addressed. Justice for the person who was being beaten up at home by the very husband who was also on the streets protesting for justice. I have two questions. One, have you been reading my notes? No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because uh, the gospel is Luke uh, chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. And I was diving into like Biko territory there. Um, the Biko relation to um, like the Mandela's uh, where, uh, but anyway, before I get to that, um, I just want to say it's, it's, it's one of those interesting conversations, this, where you talk about the fight, the 300 years, so that's including slavery not just the years of apartheid, which started in the 1930s. Um, So it's like the justice didn't come from a higher power. It came through activism. It came through protest. It came through um, 
what is it? Conflict. It came through dial dialogue. Dialogue was the word I was using. Looking it came through faith. No, 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 no. So my yes. point is, if you believe in a God that created everything that controls all things, most times you will find yourself reaching out to that power to do the work for you, to smite your enemies, to, you know, you wishing ill on other humans through truth. this mighty power. That's the truth. That is the truth. It's like, God, please remove this obstacle from my way. Meanwhile, the obstacle is a person. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that doesn't mean we are properly informed how to pray. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if we properly informed how to pray, then, um, and we follow the path of our Lord Jesus, where he, for example, said, this cup is bitter. I'm I supposed to drink it? and gets no verbal answer but whatever was spoken into his heart and mind and the silence itself moved him to the next level of that journey we need to look at that because because um that's our problem and probably people would argue it's old testament based where you have the enemy god must beat up the enemy I don't know whether that's the right reading of the Old Testament, but people have preached that along the way. Yeah. You see? But that's why I have said to you in past conversations, we, I, need to reread scripture mm. because I can't assume that I'm reading scripture properly mm. uh, just by doing one session of reading or by reading one translation. Then need, and, I, and I probably need to read it in, co in, in community with people more than just you know all by my lonesome yeah. because yeah. i think we just take the snippets that us uh, that give us a sense of empowerment mm. now mm. we can use that uh in in dialogue what made me sit through the time that the bride took to get to the place where we could start the service where I could have said, well, now I've had it, I'm leaving. What made me stay there? What makes me stay there whenever that happens? What am I really wanting to help people and help myself when things like that becomes obstacles in my way? How am I meant to address that? Um, and use that not as, like I said to the couple today, arguments mean that something is happening between you that you need to discuss in order to get to the next level of growth. Mm -hmm. So we don't pray enemies away. We pray that we may interact with them in such a way that with them, we can grow to the next level of relationship, the next level of being a better community than we were yesterday. Mm. And then learning how to deal with our differences because they're going to be, going forward, many others. But, but 
but and I th I think what has given me that just way of sitting and thinking through through things. Um, there's an opportunity here that if I don't use it, um, I would rob myself from learning. Just you know, you you know when I approach a congregation, I don't know. There's always that uncertainty until I begin to engage them in worship. Mm -hmm. Suddenly something different begins to happen and shift for me. When I meet them after that service, many of them interact on a different level with me. A level of care, a level of like, Father, please ensure that you're going to drive home safely. Coming from a stranger whose name I don't even know. Mm. So, so I certainly believe that often we have got the, I mean, how dare somebody in politics say that they are truly Christian and then they say the, the other person sitting in the other party is a terrorist because mm. he has a Muslim name. Now, that's the corruption that seems to have formulated itself around the word Christian. Mm. And that's what we have to fight against. You know, I'm liberated by these words. That all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In my initial training as a priest, deacon, when we came back from the service, which is over and we are in the vestry, we would do a vestry prayer. The rector would do the vestry prayer or the celebrant. And the celebrant says, the Lord be with you and also with you. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then he would say these words, which was taught through the channels of the history of the Anglican Church. Rest eternal grant, O Lord, unto the faithful depart. And let light pleasure shine upon them. Discrimination. I thought, I thought through those words. And I don't know whether any of us die faithful. Or any of us die in such a, 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 a right way with God that we all find. We die longing for the grace and mercy of God. So when I do that prayer now, and I have done so for many years, I say, rest eternal grant, O Lord, unto all who have died. And it like perpetual shine upon them. Mm. So my, my theology, my churchmanship, my liturgical understanding it is inclusive of everybody. When I go to the sacramental life that I'm called to live for my baptism is an inclusive one. It is not one restricted to only those who are like us. And where did I get that from? The man who sat in a Samaritan town with a lady at a well. And dared to engage her and be engaged by her in a conversation that you and I are having today. Theological about life and worship. So I'm going to say, once again, something that's a little bit left of center. So weeks ago on the Feast of Christ the King, I positioned Jesus as not the ideal 
model for a ruler. So here comes my boy, John the Baptist. I'm going to take you to verse four, which is as it is was as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. So here's, <laughs> here's this homie, right? Has no other proclamation, no prophecy outside of this throwaway line by a certifiably crazy old man who also lived in the wilderness, lived a very agrarian lifestyle, probably indulged in some edibles as well. Homie is out there in the wilderness telling Hebrew Jews, Hebrews, that like, no, your salvation does not come on this path that you are walking. It comes through baptism and the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is what this dude is proclaiming in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, dressing in animal skins. Like, this is like the Steve Biko of the Bible, where he's so out there, he's so far on the edge that there's no way that he should be taken seriously. But he has this amazing impact on the region to the point where like they have to behead him to kind of try and silence what he's preaching and then jesus rolls in gets anointed by like the finger pointing from the sky the voice that cleaved the sky saying this is my only beloved son and the bird, the pigeon, the white dove that came upon his head, and he's just rolling through with the he's now the embodiment of the prophecy. I say, more respect to John the Baptist who was out there preaching the craziness than to Jesus who kind of just walked the path that he made straight. Was it a straight path? It was a straight path. Really? With, with thorns at the end of it? Well, no one Population. was. He had an audience to address. Yeah. Because of John the Baptist. He had an audience to address. Now, John would have said, I have a particular role to play in salvation history. Constantly had to say, I'm not the one. Hmm. His sense of who he was and what his call was, which is what we all seeking to know. That um, people make fuss of certain positions in life mm. and therefore strive for them. John the Baptist says things, crazy things like, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals he's wearing. Why, in the face of all of this, is he able to point Jesus out as the one? What does John been inspired by in his own life and thinking that this was his call 
and his willingness to even die at the hands of one whom he criticized uh, for being immoral, spoke truth to power. Um, but that for him, Jesus is the one God chose to eventually be the, the savior of the world. Um, how come the prophet Isaiah becomes his inspiration? Prophecy, prophecy he draws from. Why the link with the 40th chapter in the book of Isaiah? Um, why that part where the prophet was beginning <coughs> to help Israel understand, excuse me, their liberation from the exile that they were in. And that it is ultimately fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So John himself would say, it is not my call to take you with me to the cross. I'm only the one to point out to the one who is ultimately called to go to the cross. Now, I understand your questions in that there's a lot of unknowables here. But as we deal with the knowables, we will then begin to be engaged by the unknowable. And John's role was very vital because it stood in the gap between Old Testament prophecy and the revelation fulfilled in Jesus Christ from those Old Testament prophecies. And so he's the one who then points out ultimately whom God chose as the beloved son, as the Messiah, as the one who will then go to give what would be the ultimate sacrifice. I often, and many of us struggle with the Matthean chapter where John is imprisoned. Hmm. His disciples come to him and says, um, what must we do? And at that point, the disciples are sick because prison means, yeah, John's ministry is coming to an end. We don't know what's mm -hmm. going to happen to him inside. So John asks them, according to Matthew, go and ask Jesus if he is the one. And then they go to Jesus. This was John's disciples. And so he did have followers. Yeah. yeah. And so he says, please go and tell, ask Jesus, is he the one? Jesus says, tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. That message brought back to John somehow empowered John to realize the one has come for whom he had said, prepare the way of the Lord. He looked at salvation history from a different perspective from thence on because he knew where his role was. We don't know the ins and outs of what he went on, what went on in prison. I often ask myself the question, 
Why did Jesus not go and set him free from that prison? Um, why, why was Jesus just so encompassed, encompassing, uh, sorry, what would the, what the word would be? He accepted that that was part of the reality. This are, these are some of the unknowables in the journey of faith that I am challenged by in the text. Answers I don't have. Um, I, I, I can't remember exactly, but Alan Busak in the time of the struggle preached on that text. A very brilliant sermon that I think was in one of the books that I've got to go and look up to find them uh, about that. In order to give meaning to what it was to land up in prison for the sake of justice, speaking truth to power, because all of these things were, how do we interpret them? How do we give hope to those in prison? How, would he, how do we give hope to those who are seeking justice? When leadership ends up in prison, then what happens to the rest of the populace? And authorities knew this. If they could silence the leader, they silenced the populace. Um, someone more than John was on the scene. Someone who would gain lots of antagonists along the way, especially those that knew the Torah from a legalistic perspective and from a religious perspective. And were they not the ones that said crucify him? So Jesus was misunderstood, and he's still misunderstood today. But the more I look at him, the more I read about him, the more I hear words that have been recorded about what he says, the more I know that without him, I am nothing. I'm still saying with him, with him, my sense of humanity grows. My sense of looking at another person through that eyes is to empower, is to that person's humanity as well. Yeah, I'm still saying from my perspective, I I place a lot more value on the contributions of the martyrs. At least, I, I won't say the martyrs, because martyrs <laughs> can sometimes involve people, the term martyr can involve people who didn't really do anything. They just died at a convenient time, if you will, where it's like the words of Biko inspired the youth to revolt. And without that revolt, the ball wouldn't be set in motion to capture the hearts and minds of the international community, to put more stringent um, sanctions on the South African government, which is effect, which is ultimately the thing that broke the camel's back. So um, why was the not church? To, yeah. Why was the church or in other religious faiths on the forefront of that? Because the church is uniquely positioned as a tool of mass communication. That's too Below... easy. That's too easy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a media man. I'm a 
student of the stand the role of the church in terms of communication with people, mobilizing the masses. The only thing that the reach of Christianity is radio. You know, so like with yeah, you know, you know, I although Beaker was there and everybody else was there. Do you know what moved me to become part of the struggle from a Christian perspective? Was the words of our Lord in drawing from the Old Testament. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. To bring good news to the poor. And that whole passage, it became, as it were, his manifesto. That's what drew me to the struggle. That's what got me involved in the struggle. This wasn't again, this wasn't a fight against flesh and blood. This was a bigger fight. In this fight, I believe with Desmond too to them, it was about winning the enemy as a sister and brother. It was a war of ideology. Of course it was, but it was a war of faith too. Hmm. I'd say ideology because they believe many of the same things that you did. They just had a different view on it. <laughs> yeah, but my motivation would always always have been this part in thirty thirty six. So yeah, again, like that, that. see the salvation of God. Indeed, um, but there's 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 that little wrinkle where it's like. What if John the Baptist was actually the savior? And I, I, I will always, I can't remember where I read it. I don't, it wasn't Albert Nolan. I forget who it was, who wrote it. I'll go, I'll go, I think I still have the book. Um, and it, it was such an, because the romantic in me likes to see leaders and figureheads actually do something. Like Napoleon is revered because he was a soldier. Like Hitler wasn't as successful a soldier, but Hitler was in the trenches in the First World War for a brief time, and then he got injured. Um, so he could draw from that experience. Like Nelson Mandela was part of, you know, in Conto Esizue. Um, Jacob Zuma, in his own right, was an actual freedom fighter. He was there. He understands. Those people understand the struggle in the trenches, at the coalface, where people are dying. And that's one of the issues I have with activism in 2021, where you have a generation of people who don't know, who have forgotten, who either do not know or have forgotten the horrors of your comrades actually being gunned down, actually being thrown into prison and not coming out. Um, and the same thing with, with COVID, where I don't think the virus has been destructive enough to remind people that 
be fighting something bigger than what you can put your own beliefs against, you know, your own opinions. Opinions don't matter when people are dying. Like, how closely will you cling to your opinion when the gun is at your temple, you know? And for me, like John the Baptist is the embodiment of that, where Jesus was blanketed in, he was swaddled in the blanket of prophecy. He was hardly undermined. He was challenged. What? No, he was challenged by the scribes and everybody, but no one was out there throwing him in prison uh, because of what he was saying, you know? It was just after they couldn't find any other answers to to him. They were like, okay, fine, just kill him, you know? And, like, his reverence is in his resurrection. And not... So it's it's about the idea that he conquered death. Whereas, I believe, John the Baptist seeing out that journey to an unjust death holds more weight. But that's just my personal opinion. Your rebuttal, sir. John the, Bas- John the Baptist would disagree with you, given all the <laughs> things that John the Baptist himself had said. Uh, um, I think if you, you know, a little bit of closer study of the Gospels that I've had through, yeah. through uh, recent years, have, you know, brought up into my understanding things that I never seen in the gospel before. Mm. I never understood that, you know, because one was always focusing on good news, on good news, on good news, and never realizing the context of good news actually laid in the context of antagonism, mm. in the context of, of people who wanted to undermine what he was saying, wanted to challenge him because... Um, and and I would see, you see, if I'm going to look at John the Baptist and Jesus separately, mm. then I would have lost the plot. I look at them as part of salvation history, mm. part of what the Gospels are bringing us to, so that all flesh uh, will see the salvation of the Lord. We can't write John out of that, yeah. even when we look at Jesus, because he pointed the way. Um, so John the Baptist plays a very key role in the whole of creation history, uh, salvation history. We go back to John the Baptist because we see somebody who from the, the, the groundedness of poverty speaks out and is willing to point to the one in his understanding that was the one to come for the salvation of all people, of which he was a part of, but which he, he wasn't ultimately. And, and so I wouldn't want to put them in opposition to one another because they part of the, the whole understanding, the whole journey, the whole reality of salvation history for me. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, when Jesus went to the cross to die for us, there are things about the way that he died. I mean, I, I, have, I, I can promise you that a, a lot of my counsel with people leads me to 
the words that he utters from the cross. Um, I look at the drops of blood that falls to the ground. All of that, bring it back to the sacramental love as a work of grace. Mm. Now, sometimes when one looks at the story of John the Baptist and we see the horrible death that he died, the, let me say the resurrection point of John the Baptist is he spoke truth to power. Mm. Whereas in our understanding of Jesus, he was truth that confronted power. And so John, speaking truth to power, pointed out the truth of God in Christ, who would confront power. And when we thought it's over because that power sentenced him to death on the cross, at the behest of those who said crucify him. Mm. Unbeknownst to us and unknown, God would turn this around and get Paul through his re re redemption experience to write, I'm confident of this. The one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. That was words of inspiration from a prison cell. Mm. Related to what this lady said earlier up in our theme. The Advent life, the host, this host life is like the Advent life, the life of the child in the womb. That's what the sacramental life is. Mm -hmm. Child in the swaddling bands, Christ in the tomb. It's powerful words and a powerful message of hope for me, certainly. When I look at Gender-based violence. He, he embodies the, the weak in ways that I don't think. I'm not saying others haven't done that. But in ways that it gives me hope that the victim can rise. Mm. Even when that victim dies. That victim is far more that the victim's life is a prophetic witness in death of justice against the evil of, of gender-based violence. Mm. Yeah, and on uh, that, I think we can leave it. And if you would please extract a few brief points of reflection from the praise of the church. Thank you again for another enlightening conversation. Um, yeah, thank Thanks, Lindsay. I'm just going to draw on three today because our conversation has been intense and, you know, very deep. Um, because we faced with COVID, Lindsay, um, as we pray uh, under the theme of preparation, and what we are called to do around COVID now with the om Omicron, that doesn't mean the other variants have faded away. We just have an added one now. So we ask that God would help us to stay protocol face focused because people are still dying of 
COVID-19. And in other countries, we think of how lockdowns focus purely on those unvaccinated. So we pray that God may rid us of any arrogance we may have thinking we don't need the virus or the vaccine so that we collectively can be free from the oppression that this virus brings. We thank God for all the scientists, medical people, who are trying to, to find a way of, of healing. Then on the 1st of December, we had the 38th anniversary of World AIDS Day. And we've forgotten about HIV and AIDS in many ways because of the COVID-19. And we have discovered that over 7 million of our own nation's people, the most in the world, are living with HIV and AIDS, including children. And one of the people who we prayed for we, this Sunday who died, 37-year-old Chantal Jacobs died of HIV and AIDS. One of her children, three-year-old, is HIV positive. So, Lord God, you show yourself to those who are without help and make your home with the poor and weak of the world. Warm our hearts with the fire of your spirit that we may accept the challenge of AIDS. Strengthen those who care for the sick. Enlighten those doing social and medical research and protect the healthy, calm the frightened, encourage those in pain, comfort the dying, console the bereaved, and give to those who have died eternal life. I found a prayer from the Girls Friendly Society, a ministry of the Anglican Church, focusing on gender-based violence. We pray for victims and survivors of gender-based violence. We link hands with each other as a sign of our solidarity with all who are affected by gender-based violence. We reach out our hands as a sign of our unity with all who campaign for justice across the world. We stretched up our hands as a sign of our prayers for an end to all forms of violence and abuse. I want to conclude this part of the prayers, Lindsay, with this um, prayer that encapsulates the idea of Advent. Oh Lord, let Advent begin again in us, not merely in commercials. For that first Christmas was not simply for children, but for the wise and the strong. It was crowded around that cradle with kings kneeling. Speak to us who seek an adult seat this year. Help us to realize as we fill stockings, Christmas is mainly for the old folks. Back, bent, bent backs and tired eyes need relief and light a little more. No wonder it was grown-ups who were the first to notice such a star. It was written by David Redding uh, as he captures for him the essence of Advent.
and Christmas. In conclusion, my brothers and sisters, as, you, as we thank you for joining us, pray that you will go now and prepare the way of the Lord. Share in the gospel of God's grace. Proclaim salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Make straight paths for justice and mercy. And the blessing of God, creator, redeemer, life-giving comforter, be with you always. Amen. Always go in peace with courage to love and serve the Lord and go in the name of Christ. Amen.